0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com/solutions/solovis. That's nasdaq.com/solutions/s o l o v i s. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting Capital My guest on today's show is Anna Marshall, the Vice President and Chief Investment Officer for the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, where she oversees the $10.5 billion pool of capital. Anna joined Hewlett in 2004 after spending 18 years as a direct investor in high yield credit, emerging market debt, and international equities. Our conversation covers Anna's lifelong passion for investing, joining the super buy side, conducting company meetings to inform the manager selection and allocation process, portfolio structure, manager selection, monitoring and measuring risk, perspectives on peers, internal dynamics, and working through a big mistake. Please enjoy my conversation with Anna Marshall. Anna, great to be with you in sunny California.
1: Yes, sunny most of the time, at least.
0: How did you first get interested in investing?
1: So I was about 13 years old when I decided this is what I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to invest and I wanted to manage money, which is really odd for most people.
0: What does a 13-year-old girl interested in the markets do with that?
1: go to a shopping center. But instead of going like a typical teenager, stand by a door and look at shopping bags, look at shopping trends. How are things merchandised? And so that just started my love for the whole business. And then it started into sort of what's fixed income? What are bonds? What's capital preservation? And so I just started learning all of that. So by the time I went to college, I knew exactly what I was going to do.
0: When you left school, how did you dive in?
1: So even before I left school, one of the heads of the CFA programs was one of my professors. And she had me help her write part of her book. And so that just got me into the business all at once. My whole thing was I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do high yield. I wanted to do fixed income, normal fixed income. I wanted to do equities. I wanted to do currencies. I wanted to do everything. And so I set myself five-year plans I had a plan for what to do in the first five years and then the next five years. And that's kind of been the way it's been.
0: We're 2021. 20, what is the first five years?
1: In the first five years, it was how to absorb as much as humanly possible from the greats of the business. So I met people that were willing to invest in me a great deal of time. So one of my first mentors would say, Okay, you have an hour and a half with me once a month. Bring your questions. Come at me. Who is that? It was a man named Jim Kaywood. So he worked closely in the high yield business. And he just said the best way to do this is try to absorb as much as you can. And every time you have a question, just write it down. And then in an hour and a half, I can answer whatever those questions are for the month. And then we'll move to the next thing. So I did that first in high yield, then I did in emerging debt, and then I did it in equities. And It just always seemed to be that there's always, I could find a mentor that was willing to spend the time with me to really answer all the questions. So I've done my best to try to pay that back.
0: So what was your first actual job?
1: My first actual job was as a research analyst of high yield debt. And from there, I moved to trading because they felt that while analysis is really important, unless you knew how to trade the bonds and how people were really pricing risk, all of the analysis in the world wasn't going to help you get to the answer. You needed to understand pricing of risk. And the only way to do that was trading.
0: Okay. So next five-year plan.
1: First was high yield. And then I moved into emerging debt. And then I moved into equities. And in equities, basically it went, it was all international and global equities. And that's where I really discovered the passion. There's nothing quite like traveling around the world, talking to CEOs, And connecting dots all over the place of what one CEO is doing, whether it's a trading company in Japan, a Latin American company, or a European company, and trying to connect what's really going on in global trends, especially because it was the 90s, and it was the beginning of sort of global capital flows. And so understanding where the money was going to flow, because so much of investment is understanding where the puck's moving and moving there first.
0: And with those varying lenses, so you start in high yield... Sovereign debt, emerging market debt, global equities, what did you come to believe as sort of your own either core investment principles or style that suited you best?
1: I would say my investment philosophy has always been about know the most you can. You're never going to know 100% to where you're super confident in your assessment. But know enough, know when you don't know enough. And if you don't know enough, don't do it because you're never going to have the conviction to double down if it goes against you. Whereas if you know enough and you have enough of a sense or a conviction, when something goes down, you'll double down. And those are the moments that really make your career.
0: And did that come along with any particular biases like value bias or growth bias
1: It doesn't. And I think the reason I never had the growth or the value bias is because when you start in high yield, you're analyzing for intrinsic value. And then you move to emerging market debt and you're analyzing for like hope, basically. And then you move to equities and it's a mixture of hope, value, growth. And I never quite understood. There's a lot of growth guys that buy value stocks. There's a lot of value stock guys that buy growth stocks. It just seemed growth and value ended up being tags of how to justify a style or how to justify a bias. I think if anything, my bias was more about capital preservation because when you grow up in the world of high yield, emerging debt, and even growing up in Mexico City, you grow up understanding that capital preservation and trying to do your best to minimize that left tail is actually the best way for long-term compounding.
0: You just touched on something we glossed over. Growing up in Mexico City, how did growing up outside the U.S. inform the way you think about investing?
1: I am a global citizen. And so I've lived in Latin America. I've lived in Europe, lived in the United States. And so to me, there is no one perfect way or one perfect system. I mean, I pay a lot of attention to places for rule of law, but even then, I'm far more aware of... Ease of doing business, what are the norms, what are the cultural norms in trying to understand why certain companies work a certain way? And why, if you take the case of like Korean equities, why do they always trade at a valuation discount? Well, in the American point of view, the structure of Korean companies is completely screwed up and there's no transparency. But in the way the Korean companies were built, it served a great deal of purpose, for the whole society. So understanding sort of the differences in corporate governance in Germany versus Korea versus the US. And I think growing up in a system that's outside of the first one, if you just grow up learning the US system, you think everybody else is wrong.
0: Yeah, just to dive in a little on that granularity. So to take that Korean example, the way the companies are formed makes sense from a Korean perspective. What does that mean?
1: In other words, for them, it was more about reconstruction after a war. And how it is that you got a corporate system that supported the reindustrialization of a country and it allowed them to hire a lot of people. And so the purpose of a corporation was different, very different in Korea than it is in the United States. And so you have to understand those nuances to understand that they will never, no matter how much corporate raiders and campaigns are there, For the Koreans, their system makes sense. And for the Germans, their system makes sense.
0: And you shared this view at the end of that prior sentence that the U.S. perspective oftentimes is, well, those people are wrong. What are some of those other lessons that you've taken out of sort of being a global citizen, as you said, that you think the standard U.S. investor doesn't quite get how things work in the rest of the world?
1: I think it's more, one, the role of the corporation. But also, it's the role of regulatory systems. So in the United States, especially in the last 30 years, it's been basically very light regulation, and the corporate sector gets to do a lot of things, whereas in the rest of the world, that doesn't happen. And so you see, in some ways, that's why multiples for U.S. companies are actually higher, because there is more freedom for that corporate sector. Whereas in other countries, there is a greater amount of limitation and the corporate sector pretty much understands that they're playing within those rules. And so you see like now that the Europeans are starting to do GDPR, they're starting to set standards for how US companies operate in Europe. And clearly US companies do not like this, but from the European point of view, Every company in Europe has been regulated forever. So why wouldn't a company that has now become transnational also belong to the same rules? I mean, Coca-Cola has been playing by the French rules of labeling or whatever for years. So it's that type of environment. I think you see it most clearly with just the difficulty that Americans have and American investors have looking at China and this view that China, because it was becoming capitalist, would become like the U S whereas what they have done is they have blended the system, the nationalist system they had with elements of capitalism, but without losing that element of control.
0: So walk me through a little bit, how your career progressed on the buy side.
1: So I was on the buy side, as I said, in different firms. So in 2003, I decided that I loved managing money, but I wanted to do it for a charitable cause. And so true to everything else I do in my life, I researched it, created a five-year goal plan, went through the math of it, and sort of listed the best institutions. And at this time was right when endowment and foundation money management was undergoing its own level of professionalization. For decades before that, you had had sort of the treasurer of the university or the treasurer of a foundation serve as the primary person investing the assets. And in 2002, 2003, with the notable exception of Stanford and Yale, it really was this move to let's bring in professional investment teams And try to get just excellent investment results. So it was a way to marry my love for the business with actually giving back to the world. And so I call it the super buy side because now at the beginning, all I did was go to the first round of managers where all of the people that I highly admired as peers and competitors were be being final
0: presentations
1: against each other. And so I knew everyone. It was a really easy thing to go out and just pick like the best managers out there.
0: What did it feel like going from being a portfolio manager, a researcher of companies, making decisions in the markets every day to coming on the Super Buy side where those decisions don't happen every day?
1: So I think the biggest lesson was How to not backseat drive, because that is, I think, the biggest risk to having this model of people from switching from being existing portfolio managers to our side. It's really hard. So for the first month, my mentor who hired me here, I didn't have a Bloomberg, Lori Hoagland. I didn't have a Bloomberg because he's like, okay, I need you to just completely disconnect. This is a long-term game here. You're not doing the same thing you did always. My managers actually ended up being very nice. And I still, for the first, I would say, 10 years of being here, I still managed about 75 CEO, CFO visits a year of companies in the portfolio or companies that were adjacent enough to the portfolio that would help me inform how to manage the portfolio, because when I joined in 2004, we were going from the donor stock that had almost all been sold to a fully diversified portfolio, and we were making a lot of capital allocation decisions. And getting just how things move from a strategic basis, I could talk with strategists, I could talk with economists, but really talking to CFOs on the ground and CEOs on the ground is really where you understand where the pressure points are in a system. And it actually helps you allocate capital better.
0: As you're coming from this lens that's closer to on the ground, talking to CFOs, how did that inform how you went about thinking about the structure of kind of a multi-manager, multi-asset class portfolio?
1: The first thing is I always ran concentrated portfolios. Once I moved to the equity side, I ran concentrated portfolios. Because the only way to have real conviction is to really know something and you only have so much of a brain to do that.
0: And what did that mean when you're on the equity side in terms of number of names?
1: 30, most, 20 to 30 names. And so when I started getting my network of people, once I moved to the side, it was how many points of information do I need? Do I need 10 economists? No, I need two guys I can trust. I need three strategists that completely disagree with each other. And I need to have a couple of guys that really see everything in Japan, a couple of guys that see everything in the U.S., a couple of guys that see everything in Europe. And that is how that network was built. Because what I realized was between the head of a bank in Japan and the trading house guy, you could more or less put together 80% of what was going on in that region. And now the same thing. I've done the same thing to develop it in China. And in Singapore, the same thing would happen in Europe. In other words, you needed Southern Europe, you needed Northern Europe. And then as you got those people and those points of contact, you could see how the capital was flowing from the Northern part of Europe to the Southern part of Europe all during the early 2000s. So you could then speak more intelligently to your managers. And the reality is because I brought the concentration thing here, when we have an asset class, We only have roughly 10 to 12 managers per asset class. And so each one of those managers in and of themselves, for the most part, is a concentrated portfolio manager. So in effect, you basically have a 100 stock portfolio, which I would say is still too much. But you have a granularity. And because I've owned so many of these stocks, as is my director of equities, we can have conversations where we go deep into a particular stock that we can have a conversation about how that management team behaved 15 years ago. And you learn, our job on this site is to judge how good a manager is at generating excess return. Everybody has the same slides. I mean, one of the funny things is, I mean, I gave the same presentations for God's sakes. And so the only way to really know if somebody's good is to dive into a stock. And so you have to, be up on what's going on in these stocks to be able to really have deep analytical conversations.
0: When you started, you come at this with the perspective of a stock picker in international equities with experience in the fixed income markets. Public equities tend to only be a certain percentage of one of these pools. So How did you think about the breadth versus depth of this particular deep expertise you have in one part of the capital markets, and then a bigger world of a whole bunch of things that may or may not have the same applicability of tools to assess, say, a venture capital manager or someone in real estate?
1: So the fortunate thing is I'm not doing this by myself, and in no way would I ever claim to be doing this by myself. I am surrounded by an incredibly talented team. Everyone on the team, the directors on the team, all manage money, and then We're attracted to the buy side. So they all bring their areas of expertise. Our director of privates, Christy Richardson, she is hands down the most amazing venture buyout manager selector. I trust her implicitly. We've been working alongside each other for 13 years. If she tells me a manager is good, I mean, I will go meet the manager. But for the most part, let's just say I trust that system. My director of public equity worked with me originally before I joined the foundation. So he came back. My director of the alternatives, and I don't have a hedge fund category. He is very strong. He understands these products, especially the complexity of the products extraordinarily well. So together, I would say, we have the breadth, we have the depth. There's no way I could do this without them.
0: Before we take a step back, I wanna dive in on one aspect of what you said about just the public equity side, which is for your first 10 years, you continued to do these meetings. What do you think the half-life of that information is from when you stopped doing those meetings?
1: Okay, I still do them. I just spent two weeks in Asia doing these meetings. Like, I can't stop myself. I am a highly intellectually curious human. I do them with a different purpose. It's It's less about where is the economics of the world going and more about understanding disruptive trends. So... A lot of the focus of my meetings in the last two weeks was on the move to electronic money, monetary systems. So meeting with central bankers, meeting with, with banks, with insurance companies, with just not just technology. We hear the technology part here in the Valley, but how does that actually get adopted? And what are the impediments to adoption? And at the same time, you have an existing Success story in Alipay and WeChat Pay, and what is the ability of those systems to actually permeate Asia? So that's what I spent the last two weeks doing.
0: And we'll get into the structure, but you have a concentrated portfolio of managers. What do you do with that information that you gather in Asia?
1: Oh, I have great conversations with my managers. I come back and I have spent for the last 10 years a ton of time in China and in Asia because we've had an Asian tilt in the portfolio. And so They only get to see their vertical in Asia or their vertical in the United States or in Europe. And what they're looking is to just have a conversation of like, the first question usually from them is, where were you last and what were you studying? And we'll go on a 20 minute rant on what it was we were doing because it informs them in some way of just what is happening out in the world around them. And so it's a partnership. Most of our managers, we have a concentrated manager roster. A majority of our managers have been in our portfolio for at least 10 years. So this is a partnership. It's a friendship. It's a partnership where it's not that I feel I have anything to prove, but if I can be additive in any way or make it help, make an introduction, then that's what we do.
0: And how do you balance this sort of knowledge and information gathering about whatever it is you choose to focus on with the continual evaluative process of the managers that are in your portfolio?
1: So the directors each are in charge of doing the continual monitoring of each of the managers. In any given year, I meet with probably 80% of the managers in the portfolio. But I am there as a second chair entirely. I mean, I have to let my team do their thing. It's usually when we start talking with the manager about one of these very sort of esoteric conversations that you sometimes see where they're not seeing around the corner or they're missing the bigger picture. So you can try to talk about the bigger picture, see how open they are to it. Or you can say, okay, no, this is a manager that just wants to head down, and this is what they're going to do. And if something really disruptive comes around, I'm not sure how they're going to handle it. So my job is actually in sizing positions. That's where I make those calibrations. Is it really in the sizing of positions?
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. As you roll up what you own, do you take these views that you'll develop about how payments are working in China and see, you know, there's a directional arrow of progress we want to be exposed to. We're not. Do you then... Do anything directly, uh, sort of a low-cost overlay?
1: So we don't do anything directly. There are teams that do it, and they do it really well. We are eight people in an investment team. (laughs) Okay, We're managing $10.5 billion. One of my first philosophies, know what you know, know what you don't, and where you don't have expertise. There is no competitive advantage on sitting in my seat to be able to make those kinds of calls and the amount of attention it would require. Would probably take our eye off the ball, something else we needed to be doing.
0: All right, let's circle back to the structure of how you think about this pool. So, we've talked a bunch about how you navigated from the buy side to using that expertise to try to find certain groups of managers and then bring people on your team that have that kind of same capability in other areas. What does the portfolio look like?
1: So, the portfolio is your classic endowment portfolio. You've got your public equity, you've got what is different about our portfolio is we don't have a hedge fund category. So we run a risk management system and hedge funds just never fit into the risk management system. So I'm sure like everybody else made the mistake of having the wrong risk attached to the hedge fund portfolio when we were running our risk management. So in 2009, I said, okay, forget this. We're going to break it apart and look at the components of it and see what we like and what we don't. So one of the things that came out was most of the risk- had been born by hedge fund portfolios taking much too much long short exposure because they wanted the beta. And what we decided is we can short cheaper than a hedge fund just based on our balance sheet if we ever wanted to. So why are we paying two and 20 to have somebody short beta for us? Why don't we just hire the best stock pickers on the planet and then we can figure out what exposure we want? So We pretty much blew out all our long short guys.
0: No matter how talented you thought they were.
1: It was one of those moments. (laughs) We have given opportunity for our managers. If they want to short, they can short. But that's certainly not where they make their money at all. Then we then took what was the distress credit, the multi-strat guys. And we realized the multi-strat guys had a really good role in the portfolio the distressed credit guys too. So we put them together into an asset class. And my theory, which has proven, but I had no way of proving then, was that this group of managers could get me about 70% of the equity return with half the volatility. And it was really important to get a significant pool of capital of the portfolio in something that still had growth component but lowered the volatility. And part of the reason is because we sit on Sand Hill Road and our program has been in existence for so long, we have a spectacular venture portfolio. So I'm always balancing the risk between this incredibly fortunate position we have in this portfolio that we don't want to let go of with can I own as many public equities as I would like? Well, no, because I have to balance the risk somewhere. And this pool of sort of distressed credit multi-strike guys, really did the job for us. So that we did something a little bit different there. We also have fixed income, which there, okay, if you want to know bias of mine, yes, if you come from fixed income and capital preservation, you kind of know the value of capital preservation. We've held fixed income the whole time. To what degree? 12 points in the portfolio, something like that. It's not huge, but it's far more than any of my peers, for sure. I've always felt that there needs to be ballast in a portfolio. And between my distressed credit book, some of my non-beta exposed absolute return, and my fixed income, that serves as the ballast, the true ballast of this portfolio.
0: How do you implement the fixed income? Is that active, <laughs> passive, where in the <laughs> sort of credit risk spectrum?
1: So. Brett Johnson, who's fabulous at this, he runs our fixed income, our distress book, and our real estate book. And he's always making that trade off. Because I personally don't care which bucket it falls into, as long as he is able to construct me a portfolio that really provides ballast. So at times, it's a lot of RMBS. At times, it might be more treasuries. He works with his managers to be able to really deliver what I expect in terms of return and the level of risk that I'm willing to take on that part of the portfolio.
0: So does that part of the portfolio then gravitate to fixed income managers with broad capabilities?
1: No. Actually, what happens is we do do some of it through swaps. It's a very high cost to do levered corporates. There's too much of a drag. And so we tend to do levered in index treasuries. There's not much alpha you can add managing a treasury book. So we don't really bother doing too much of that. So we have an index treasury book. Where we tend to take our active risk is where people have a specific expertise, be it in RMBS or CMBS or whatever part of the market.
0: How much can you put in venture and be with the great managers that you want to be in?
1: So I do think there is a sweet spot. I happen to enjoy managing a portfolio that is in that sweet spot where the top allocation at these managers is still significant enough for us to matter. As you grow in assets, I think it's a very difficult thing to try to keep to that 10 core managers and focus just simply because you can't get enough access. We happen to be fortunate in that we are in this situation. I couldn't imagine the challenges of running really large pools of capital that are trying to do venture,
0: I think is really difficult. And what percentage of your pools in venture today?
1: Oh, uh, 16,
0: 17. And so as we break it down, you get, say, high teens in venture and there's bonds and that adds up to 30. How much is in public equities?
1: About 27 to 30, somewhere around there. So we have a lot of equity risk. In no way would I consider us in the sixty forty camp or the super conservative camp. And quite frankly, you can't be, because in a foundation, I have a mandate of five percent payout. So I have to have at least seventy percent equity risk in this portfolio to be able to, on a long-term basis, achieve the objective, which is to grow or maintain the real spending power of this institution.
0: Talk a bit about what it takes for a manager to get in your portfolio. So we know when you started, you had views based on people that were doing what you're doing, and you knew who you thought were good. How has that evolved over the last, you know, what, 15, 16 years?
1: Well, it's evolved in the fact that now there's three awesome directors that are constantly looking. But even then, they have a very high hurdle rate. Because for every manager that they want to bring into the portfolio, somebody else is leaving. I give them maybe a margin of one extra guy, but that's it. I am pretty merciless on this one. And so the hurdle rate is extraordinarily high. I mean, really high for them. And then once they make it through them, then I come in. I would say it has to be somebody that has the ability to really see around corners because we are at a point in time that none of us have ever lived through and a manager that has just had a great performance track record and they just say, this is the way it's worked, it's always worked this way, and this is the way it's going to keep working, is probably not the manager that's going to stay in our portfolio. A manager that understands that they don't know how this is going to work out, but they're going to try to navigate it. But if they have a very disciplined process of thinking about it, that's a manager that's likely to make it into our portfolio.
0: As you go across asset classes, the venture capitalists, there's a certain way you could say thinking around corners and new technologies, they all have to be in that. How much of that lens is mostly applicable to sort of public equity, public hedge fund managers with slightly broader mandates than just a real estate manager who's developing in San Francisco?
1: Actually, I would say the real estate manager is, there's the tried and true guys, but then there's the ones who say, okay, the whole Amazon retail disruption was coming. It's about industrial space, or it's about developing only in centers where just choosing their spots more carefully in the sense of this is a knowledge-based economy we're turning into. I really only want to develop multifamily housing or normal housing in sub-markets where I think there's either a university or something really more about intellectual capacity. So we see those trends happen even in real estate. So I wouldn't say that this is just a public equity. Yes, you definitely see it more in venture. You see it in somewhat in the public equity, guys. You see it in real estate. You see it in the buyout, guys, because otherwise they're going to get crushed. You probably see it the least in fixed income. But even in our fixed income manager, they have a whole disruption series that they're running all the time also to make sure they don't get pounded because in corporate bonds, if you get disrupted, you are toast on your recovery.
0: So in that process of introducing a new manager to the portfolio, do you tend to have a bias towards a new organization, or is there a new insight on an existing organization that someone on the team surfaces up?
1: We're actually probably the most agnostic on that one. We have found tremendous talent locked within ginormous organizations that my ENF peers don't really talk to.
0: A particular fund in a large organization? Yes.
1: A manager that we just particularly like. And as long as we feel that he's left alone, we're good. So those are very large existing organizations. We also follow people when they leave and form new organizations. We're also willing to support them there. So we don't really have a bias on that one at all. Like We don't need to see a performance track record. Very little of what we do is based on a three-year track record. So much of what we do is about the people.
0: Have there been examples where you added a manager that was established, hadn't been in your portfolio for whatever reason, and you decided, you know what, maybe we missed this in the past, but now we think we should invest with them?
1: Oh, definitely. There are managers that we visit for three years, that we have great conversations. And finally, it just, okay, I think we finally get how they think and we think there is a role for them but for every idea that comes into the portfolio we have to think about what is their edge and what is particularly differentiating about them and their return stream from our existing portfolio because otherwise you would just add capital to an existing manager we don't have inflows of capital So an endowment, an insurance company, a sovereign wealth fund, they're always putting money, new money to work. We don't have any new money. We just have existing money. So there has to be some differentiating factor, some insight that that manager will bring to the portfolio, not just to that asset class, but in making us smarter about the whole portfolio.
0: And how long is that list of managers that are kind of your ongoing real conversations, but today aren't in the portfolio?
1: I would say differs by asset class a great deal. There's more turnover in our commitments, let's say, to some buyout funds. I would say within real estate, within public equity, within fixed income, it's been a fairly stable. We might look at a handful of new managers.
0: When you roll up all the risks or however you're rolling up your exposures, how do you think about and communicate what it is you own to, say, your investment committee?
1: In many ways. We spend a lot of time on this. So we do it by asset class, the way traditional people do it. We have two terrific partners that help us do factor risk analysis. There's people on my committee that love factor risk, so they get factor risk reports. We do it communicating and really instructing them on what the beta of the portfolio is, because for many We are one commitment on an investment committee. They might be on 10 committees. They see us three times a year. Like, really, they're not going to remember this whole thing. And so something that's very easy for them to remember what kind of risk we're running. And we're super transparent. I'm fortunate. I have an incredible delegation of authority. The responsibility that comes with that is completely transparent, frequent communications with the chair of my committee. He and I are on the phone all the time. Whenever I'm thinking about anything, I always consult him. And that seems to work for them.
0: How do you think about peers?
1: So I think about my peers. I like my peers. I try to be friendly to my peers. I would say if I can be helpful to them. I mean, they know that they can call me and I'm happy to answer questions. I don't buy into the whole peer competitive dynamic thing. There are several people on my investment committee who do and therefore we do have to show that and I am held accountable for that. But more than anything else I think every institution is and every CIO is trying so hard to just meet the needs of each institution. And I think the difficult thing in endowment and foundations is it's so easy for people to just sort of put us all in one bucket. And each institution is just so different. A hospital can in no way have the same challenges. And as a CIO, the conversations you're having with your committee are entirely different than the ones I'm having at a foundation or that somebody's having at an endowment. And I think part of the reason the peer network helps is it's interesting to see what other challenges people are facing and how they're coming up with solutions. And it just helps you be a smarter CIO.
0: And we talked previously about that concept of a peer network, what have you done to share and gather information that helps your intelligence with your peers?
1: We have several things. So we have a network of endowment and foundations that it's all the CIOs and it's an email list. And you get a question from your investment committee, you send it out to the endowment and foundation list, you probably get a 60% hit rate because people travel. And then you gather the answers, you roll it back out and say, hey, just in case you're ever asked, this is the latest on benchmarks, or this is the latest on compensation or incentives or asset allocation. So there is that sharing. We also have a more dedicated group, which is the large foundations, who share, I would say, similar challenges in that the granting programs and just The board ambition for granting programs really does color the type of risk and the type of duration we can run in our portfolios. And so we have that in common. And so once a year, we get together and do open book sharing of every part of our portfolios, every part of our challenges. And it's this very cathartic two days that we do that we all come out learning something from each other. And I think that's the value of the peers.
0: If you're in the process of trying to get into a manager, so you've identified a manager, or maybe it's a venture capital manager, somebody that you think is truly exceptional, that has excess demand, what is the Hewlett pitch?
1: We have a very coordinated pitch in the sense that we, if we're allowed in, every dollar you make for us goes to save the planet for women's reproductive health or for women's economic empowerment. I mean, we have very compelling programs and our website is great and our comms team is fabulous. And so I think we can definitely pitch that. I think more than that, it's how can we be of value to you? So I would say one of the really interesting things is because we see and we are so deep with managers and we've been in a relationship for so long, we tend to help them think through things. And that's a learned process. So for somebody like Christy, people want Christy as part of their advisory board. They want to be able to consult. They want to be able to, in my case, to have those conversations. And so our pitch is: we were once in your seat. We know what it is to be in your seat. And we really believe in your ability to generate returns for us. And we are longstanding partners and we are here to help. And that's our pitch.
0: And sometimes it works. <laughs> a lot
1: of times it works. Yeah.
0: I'd love to dive in a little bit on the, the internal team dynamics and really, as you think about the structure of your week, do you have standard meetings?
1: There is no structure of a week. We theoretically have a team meeting every Monday, but because we all travel, We tend to have those maybe once every three weeks, four weeks. We do a lot of email communication. We Zoom a lot from wherever we are. But it really is this part of the reason I've kept the team so small is we're all within shouting distance from each other. And as you can see in our office, it's pretty small and shouting distance works just fine. And it's very collegial. Everyone's compensation is based on how the portfolio does. Everyone we have our team values and the number one value is you must think that every day you're becoming a better investor. So this concept of I want to learn. And the only way you learn is if somebody challenges you. And so it's this very open, challenging environment of why are you thinking about it this way? Not in a mean way, but in a trying to really arrive at an answer Because they're trying to learn how you arrived at the answer. And so one of the better ways to do that from a hiring perspective is to hire people that didn't all get raised the same way. So we have two people who were raised in a very highly quantitative people who believe that active management does not exist. To come into a shop like ours is crazy, but they wanted the challenge, so I was all for giving it to them. And they look at things very differently from somebody that grew up thinking that they could always generate alpha and active risk. And so you have to have those combinations. You have to have combinations of people who have never seen a down market and then the people who have seen all of them. So you do have to have various points of view to make sure you're not institutionalizing biases into your investment process. Because I think that is a really dangerous thing if you do that. Things don't just happen because I say so. I mean, yes, I run a benevolent dictatorship, but things don't happen (laughs) just because I say so. I really do. If I can't convince somebody, then that means my argument's not strong enough. And therefore, I need to go back and strengthen my argument. So it tends to not happen. So that's sort of how as a team we work together, and we really do. I mean, there isn't a group vote on an investment. That's not the way we work. But we speak in the team meetings about every investment we make so that everyone around the table understands how we got to that conclusion. And in that process, they learn about capital flows, cost of capital, managers, how do you analyze a team better? that conversation just sparks more learning.
0: What are the other core values?
1: Our core value is you got to learn. Argue is if you're right, listen as if you're wrong and be willing to change your mind. Because the amount of times my team has changed my mind is actually pretty impressive. (laughs) I will be a straight no and eventually I might get to a yes. If the strength of your argument is such that We all make mistakes and everyone's allowed mistakes, but it's the process of how you get to that decision that really matters and that consistency. And so from the CIO point of view is being able to telegraph the consistency of what I look for. That at least, they don't waste a lot of time. We triage very early and then once they get going, they don't waste time. They pretty much get to that point. And if they're on the fence... I'm on the plane with them the next week so that we can get ourselves off the fence one way or the other.
0: Okay. That's the second. Are there other core values?
1: So that's the second core value. The third one is this diversity of thought. It's wonderful when we have junior members of the team just asking, wait, do you actually have proof of what you just said? Like is there data to prove what you just said? And it's great. Like, I want that diversity of thought and I want that freedom. We spend a lot of time in team retreats and in just in social activities to engender that interpersonal trust because that cannot exist without a huge amount of trust. One of the values is you got to trust people. You got to be thinking that people give people the benefit of the doubt. You have to think that everybody is rowing the same boat. We're all here to generate the money so that the Hewlett Foundation can do what it does. We are not the stars of the play. We are here as the little wheel on the corner. So that's our job.
0: What's the most gut-wrenching decision that you had to make in the portfolio?
1: We had to accept that we made a pretty significant mistake in the way that we had constructed our real estate portfolio. And it happened to be at the time where we were also switching coverage. And we ended up basically doing a secondary sale and starting over. We just kind of looked at it one day and said, let's just start over. What
0: was the nature of that mistake?
1: It was a far more diversified portfolio. It was before I became really militant about diversification. So it was a very diversified portfolio and it lacked a level of conviction precisely because of the diversification and so it wasn't constructed in the way the rest of the portfolio was constructed. It was an outlier. And finally I said, okay, this isn't really working. What we're getting is, yes, we're getting beta, but we could get cheaper beta buying a REIT, for God's sakes, people. What are we really trying to do? What is the role of this? So everything goes back to what is the role of the asset class in the portfolio? And what we had as a portfolio was not serving the role that we wanted it to have in the portfolio. So we just started over. But it was brutal. It was a ton of work, costly, huge conversation with investment committee, as you can imagine. We haven't looked back since.
0: And start over, like clean sheet start over?
1: Clean sheet. We kept, I think, five managers. Out of? Probably 50. Oh, wow. 40.
0: It was clean sheet. All right. Let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Travel,
1: which I know is insane given the amount of travel I do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was raised on an airplane and so it's in my blood. I love to travel. If I'm in business somewhere, I'll tag on two or three more days and go explore the countryside or go explore a new area, new city I haven't been to. I am fascinated by how people live their lives and just observing people. I can sit, I can drink lots of coffee. I can sit at a cafe and stare out at people for hours and talk to taxi drivers and talk to the bank people and just kind of understand how they go about their lives. It's fascinating to me.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: My biggest pet peeve is people who pretend they know something when they don't. Like, if you don't know something, own it. No one knows everything. Just get over it and say, I don't know what, or I'll get back to you and move on.
0: What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: Same. Is that pretty much? (laughs) Same. What
0: reading do you almost never miss? The FT. And are there any particular investment writers that you pay close attention to?
1: I'm a big fan of Ian Brummer. Because again, he thinks outside the box. So people who think outside the box are the kind of writers I like.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Your integrity is everything you've got. At the end of the day, it's who you are as a person that matters.
0: All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Oh, God, there's so much you can just let go. One of my managers actually gave me this whole concept about a basket of worries There's only so much that fits into a basket of worries. If you're going to worry about something, just make sure that you've got something else you can throw out of your basket so that it fits. If I had known that when I was 20, it would have, wow, the amount of anxiety I could have avoided in my life would have been impressive.
0: Fantastic. Anna! thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you.